Well, good morning, everyone. I want to start promptly so that we maximize our time with our speaker. I think you all know that I'm Clark Irvin. Thank you very much for being here on this lovely morning. We're very pleased to have as our speaker today one of our own, the Reverend Will Morris, who is the assisting priest here at St. John's for engaging faith in the workplace, an exciting new ministry among us that Will is creating and about which he will speak this morning. In addition to being a priest, Will is also a practicing lawyer, both an American lawyer and a British solicitor. Currently, he is serving as PwC's Deputy Global Tax Policy Leader. He returned here to Washington in 2017 after 17 years at GE, mostly in London. In the mid-90s, he served here in Washington both at the IRS and the Treasury Department's Office of Tax Policy. Will is a graduate of Trinity College, Cambridge with a degree in history. He has a law degree from the University of Virginia and a theology degree from St. Melitus College. With that, please join me in welcoming the Reverend Will Morris. Thank you very much, Clark. And when you, when you read it out like that, it, it makes it sound like one of the most methodically best planned lives you've ever heard. But <laughs> trust, trust me, it wasn't. Um, uh, and um, I've had some wonderful opportunities along the way, but many of them have been uh, grabbed as they passed before they passed, if you see what I mean. Um, but I have been uh, very fortunate both in my um, secular work life, uh, but also in my vocation. And as I, like, as I like to say, I have a job which I love and a vocation which I love. Um, and I want to talk about those two because one of my strongest feelings uh, is that you cannot lead two lives um, or multiple lives. It is all too easy to open the door on one, do that, slam the door on that, open the door on the other. Um, but in particular, and as Clark said, I'm a, I'm a tax lawyer, I'm definitely not a neurosurgeon. Um, and I work, uh, as I like to say, at the dodgy end of a dodgy profession. Um, nobody, nobody really likes uh, tax lawyers full stop, uh, and then the sort who tend to work for either in or for uh, large corporations, or particularly large U.S. corporations, uh, who are not world-renowned for paying substantial amounts of tax across the world, people do occasionally say, how do you do that? And I'll get to that at the end. Um, but it is an important question, and it is not about me uh, standing up in a clerical shirt on Sunday um, and somehow using that to you know, sort of whitewash the rest of the week. Uh, it doesn't work like that, and that's not how our, uh, how our job should work. So um, I, I have a, a brother-in-law who used to work in the RAF, now works for, for Rolls-Royce, and the first jet that he flew was quite an elderly jet, and the joke about it was that it was 50,000 rivets flying in loose formation. <laughs> um, and uh, I have all the rivets of this talk, but you may find that the formation is a little loose. However, uh, I'm going to try and do this essentially in three blocks, and I'm going to try and do it so that I stop talking by half past and give you at least 10 or 15 minutes uh, to ask questions, because actually the questions are really important. Um, I used to, when I was back in London, I used to go once a year, occasionally they were for once, one day a year they allowed reality to intrude. I would go back to my theological college and do a, um, a, a couple of hours course for ordinands on faith in the workplace. And the last time I went back, um, uh, I, you know, I noticed during the, uh, the first session, I've been doing this now for four or five years, so I've seen the evolution of social media, um, smartphones, all the rest of that stuff. Uh, I noticed that almost everybody was on their computer, and then you know, there were smiles and there were various things. And I, I knew I wasn't that amusing, so um, if it wasn't, uh, they weren't laughing with me, they were probably laughing at me. 
Um, I came to the second part of the session, and I said, now I've been told I have to do a group exercise. And one of them stuck up their hands and said, no, no, we think it would be really much more interesting to, for you to talk about all the blog posts that we've just been reading uh, about you, um, some, of which are some of which are favorable and some of which are not. How would you like to talk about that? And I went, well, so long as you don't tell the people that we haven't done the group exercise, then that's actually a much more interesting set of things to talk about. So be thinking about questions um, as I talk to you. But I do want to, I want to talk about this in, essentially in three chunks, smallish chunks. Um, but these will, I hope, be things that we can explore, build on uh, over the months and hopefully years to come. Um, so the first is theological. That's not quite as scary as it sounds. Um, the second is practical. And then the third is about my job, in, in particular my job. So the theological part is quite important. I uh, occasionally, uh, more than occasionally, speak to, uh, to academics, to teachers, to particularly those who are, who are teaching uh, ordination courses. Uh, and more often than not, they will say, how can there be a theology at work? You know, this is something practical. It's something that you do. But what is it about God? And I, I, I've gotten used to this, so I don't get quite as cross as I used to do. But I think it's important to spell out that actually there is uh, a theology at work. Uh, and it's something which is quite important. And I'm going to give you two small flavors of that. I can't, uh, I can't do much more than that. Um, but the first is biblical. Um, and uh, yes, uh, I'm a rational person. Uh, I have sat next to people, um, particularly at um, Cambridge colleges, who say, do you really believe all that stuff? Um, to which my answer is, well, what do you mean by all that stuff? Uh, and secondly, what do you mean by believe? But I do believe that the Bible is divinely inspired. Uh, and I do believe that it gives us a template, a template, mark you, um, to live our lives and to understand what it is that God may be asking for uh, from us. Um, and therefore, I start right at the beginning of the Bible. Very simple, first couple of pages. Uh, in Genesis, which I do not take literally, but I do take metaphorically. Uh, and it, right at the beginning of the Bible, you have a God who is engaged in work. You have a God who is engaged in making the world. Um, and uh, it doesn't have to happen in seven days, it doesn't have to happen in seven billion years. But you get an idea of a God who is interested in the world. This is not a God who is sitting on a cloud waiting to be worshipped. This is not a God who is listening to beautiful music being made. This is a God who is creating the whole world and is making the world. And in, that, in the first chapters of Genesis, um, we see an invitation from God to humanity um, which, to be very clear, we've messed up substantially, as you've heard over a number of other forum talks as for. But we are invited by God to take a part uh, in that work of ongoing creation, which is what God does. Um, now, you come to, uh, to, to sin and to the fall. You can use those terms if you want to. You can use terms about imperfection. It is clear that as we look around the world, not everything is working perfectly. I think we, we can agree on that. Um, and therefore, that goes in part of the, part of the nature of work. Um, we have been invited by God to take part in that ongoing work of creation, but we have also helped to mess it up. Um, and therefore, we have a God who cares about work. He sits at the end of each day. God looked at it and said, it is good. Okay, so that's, that's the beginning point. Go right to the other end. Not everybody likes the book of Revelation. There are some odd bits in it. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest about that. But right at the end... You see the new heaven and the new earth coming down. You see once again God at work remaking creation. Now, there's an important point here because a lot of the way that um, 
eschatology, to give a very grand term, the end of time, the perfection of everything gets talked about, um, there are plenty of people who see this as the destruction of all that's imperfect and that heaven and earth dropping in. That's one view, but it's not the only view, okay? The other view is that the end of all things is about the re-perfection of what we have messed up. It is about God at the end of time making things perfect again. And therefore you have God who is doing these things, who is still interested in all of that. And as I say then rhetorically to, to people who question whether there is a theology of work or whether God cares about work, why is it that we have a God who right at the beginning of creation seems really interested in work and we have a God who right at the end of all time seems really interested in work, but right now, here in the present, with you and me, he doesn't care about it. All he cares about is Sunday morning and singing hymns uh, and worshiping. That doesn't seem to make sense. Well, it's a rhetorical question, obviously. Um, but you know, that's the point. We have the Bible, which tells us in so many ways that God is interested in work. Now, part of the problem, and again, I'm not gonna get into this uh, in any level of depth at all, is that when we move out of the Hebrew scriptures, which are very interested in physical things as well as spiritual things, and we move into Christianity, it all gets messed up with Plato and the Greeks, and it all becomes about spirituality, and we get these hierarchies, and I'll, I'll come to Luther in a second. But, um, nevertheless, if we take faithfully uh, our heritage from the beginning, through the Hebrew scriptures to now, we have an obligation to worship. We have an obligation to love God. But we also, have a we also have an obligation to be in relationship with our fellow human beings, and we have an obligation to the physical world in which we have been placed. One of the big problems for, one of the many, um, but one of, perhaps one of the biggest problems of Christianity um, is that Jesus Christ came to earth 2,000 years ago and talked about coming back. That, so far, you may have noticed, hasn't happened, at least not for Episcopalians. Um, and therefore, we need to try to make sense of this. But if you look, one of the challenges is presented in Luke 3 or 4, and I, I looked for a Bible upstairs, we didn't have one, so I'm gonna have to do this from memory, for which I apologize. Um, but very right at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus comes back um, to Nazareth, and he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and it's this famous passage about, I've come to bring comfort to the poor, I've come to clothe the prisoners, all the rest of that stuff. And he then um, says, Today, this reading has been fulfilled in your sight. And you think, what does that mean? The kingdom has clearly not come. The way I read that is it is an invitation made possible by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It is an invitation to participate in the healing of the world, in the, in the world which we have helped to break, continue to help to break, but something that we can do. And that is not just something which takes place in church. It is something which takes place in all of our lives. I'm not marking work out as something special. We have relationships, you have relationships with people in this room. You have relationships with people in schools. You have relationships with people in hospitals. But you also have relationships with people in the workplace. And there is something, there is something about what goes on at work which gives us an, a, a possibility maybe an obligation, but certainly a possibility to participate uh, in that healing. Now, the other bits of the theology, um, again, which I'm not going to go into, but we can, you, know, you can ask me, hey, could we do a course on this? Yeah, of course we can. Um, but you look at Luther, for example. Luther helps the church. Luther got some things wrong, again, let's be clear about that. 
But Luther also helped the church retrieve some idea of the importance of work. Right at the beginning with the Desert Fathers, uh, and then with the beginning of monasticism, you look at the rule of St. Benedict, to be sure, there is worship, there is prayer, um, there's silence, but there is also work. It is a fourfold uh, occupation for the monks, and work is an important part of that. And it's this thing about the dignity of work. It is a thing about the sanctification of work. Giving gifts to God are not just about putting them on the altar plate. Um, in the stewardship period, that's very important. Let me not underplay that. But nevertheless, it is about taking the things that we have, that we have been given, that we are working on, and offering, up to, offering them up to God. And we can do that in the workplace as much as we can anywhere else, and sometimes more. Because think about it. We work, those of you who do work in offices, wherever you work, have worked, see people who work. This is not just about people who work, but this is about the importance of the workplace in our lives. If you are there for 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week, you are there, what, 10 times more, 20 times more than you are in church on a Sunday morning. You interact in those settings with people. You can help them. You can do things with them. An important point, I, I, I mentioned Jesus at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Remember, he was about 30 when that happened. He had been doing something before that. He was a carpenter. He was a carpenter's son. Jesus, the son of God, worked for a very long time before he began his ministry. And that was part of who he was. That was part of his experience becoming incarnate as a human being. Okay, so Luther had this idea of what he called stations or vocations, which is we are placed in this life, wherever we're placed, to do good things. And whether we are a prince, whether we're a shoemaker, whether we are a candle maker, whatever we are, we can firstly worship God in doing that, but also we can help our fellow human beings. And whether that's by making a great candle, uh, or whether it's by ruling wisely, or whatever it is, again, in that work, and you can play this forward to, to, to now, in our work, we can do those things. So we can relate to other human beings, we can help them, we can fulfill. Now, Luther has been taken, and bad things happened during the Industrial Revolution. Um, you know, people never saw their job from the beginning to the end. You have Adam Smith, um, you move into... Um, the Protestant work ethic loosely described, um, and, uh, and Weber and some of the, the sociologists who, who look at this. Um, and again, you can go off in odd directions, which lead you, for example, to the prosperity gospel, um, which, uh, to my way of thinking, gets things the wrong way around. Um, but, but there we are. Um, but nevertheless, there have been some modern um, theologians who've begun to think about this. And there's a guy that many of you will heard of, although not in this context, called Miroslav Volf, who's at Yale, Croatian originally, um, very famous for the work he's done on conflict resolution uh, and other things. But nevertheless, he also wrote a book called Work in the Spirit about 25 years ago. It could do with updating. Um, but the point that he makes is that the idea of vocations as such, what Luther said about being stuck in a job where you don't feel that you're doing any good and in fact you feel you're being oppressed, uh, is not what God wants. What God wants is for us to work with the spirit, um, with a charism, as he calls it. It's to discover what it is inside of ourselves that is of God, which can then be brought into the workplace uh, and made good. And that is a very hopeful way uh, of looking at it. So we can unpack that uh, a little more if you'd like to. Um, uh, and again, ask questions about this by all means. Um, OK, so let me move on from the theology. So there's, there's a practical side of it. 
Um, and I tend to look at this in three, at three different levels, if you will. Um, the first is the personal level, or the interpersonal level. You can call it pastoral if you want to, which is whether you work in an office, uh, in a cubicle, uh, whether you work in a shop, whether you have a volunteer job, um, you know, whether you go to the gym. It doesn't really matter. When you are alongside people doing something, you have an opportunity to learn something about them. You have an opportunity to do what we were intended to do as human beings, which is to be in relationship with other people. And you have that opportunity to find out things about them, to find out how they, how they might be hurting. Um, and you know, we can use these terms metaphorically. I, I often come back to the parable of the sheep and the goats. But you can think of people who are in real, real ways imprisoned in their job, or imprisoned in their lives, or imprisoned in a relationship. And you may be able to help them. You can find people who metaphorically feel naked in front of the world. You can find people who are hungry. Hungry for hope, hungry for love, hungry for friendship, hungry for something. You can find all of those people in the workplace and you have the opportunity there in ways that you have almost nowhere else to be able to help them. So that's point one. That's the simple, practical level. Point two is your business uh, and what the business does and where you are in that. And again, you know, I will tell you, this message from me is different in my late 50s and it would have been in my late 30s and it would have been in my early 20s. Uh, and that's inevitable. But there are things that we can do uh, in our jobs which influence our business, okay? Now those can be, you know, how does, the, how does the hierarchy work? Hierarchies aren't always bad. They can be awful, just to be very clear about that. But they're not all, always bad if it's, about, it's, it's actually about dividing things up, making sense of a structure and helping people in a sense, create the space to be able to do the things they want. There are troubling parts of St. Paul's epistles which are troubling for people because they talk about the role of authority. And it sounds wrong because we can only have one authority which comes from God. And what St. Paul effectively says is, no, if you accept this structure, even if it's not perfect, in fact, in some cases, if it's bad, it then gives you the space inside of that where you're not worrying about this hierarchy and everywhere where you fit into it and what your role is and what your title is and all the rest of that stuff then actually you have the space to, to help other people, to relate to other people, to be more spiritual. So again, it, it can have that role. But also think about the way that businesses interact with customers, the way that businesses interact with suppliers, the way that businesses interact with other businesses. Again, there is the opportunity to make your business, help to make your business, even in the smallest way. And bear in mind, again, this is not about changing the world. We tend to think of things as, you know, we'll get, we'll get that one opportunity to change everything? And the answer is no, you won't. And if you go back to somebody like Stanley Howes, for example, it's actually about making very, very, very small differences every single day. And that, again, is about what the workplace does. So think about your job. Can you make your workplace, in some way, slightly better? And it goes back to this idea, again, of the workplace, like everywhere else, as somewhere where you can help, even infinitesimally, in the healing of God's creation, that creation which I believe will be perfected at the end of time. Not destroyed and replaced, but perfected. So that's the second way of doing it. And then the third way is this larger way, which is how does the business interact in terms of what it does, uh, in terms of its purpose, if you will, um, with the rest of the community. Uh, a business, like a church, should not be an isolated island. It is actually something, again, it's this idea of being in a relationship, but now a larger idea of being in a relationship, um, where Everything interacts with everything else, or can do, or should do. 
Uh, and one of the problems with the past 20 or 30 years is that we have, in a sense, become more individualistic and more isolated, and we've lost a sense of what spirit is about. And, you know, this is Robert Putnam, Bowling Alone, all of those types of ideas. And again, it's not to criticize, but it is to say, how can we reconnect? And you see it in society around us, which is more fractured, because people have less connections, less human connections. And again, what an opportunity exists in the workplace, as broadly defined as you wish, to reconnect and to begin to make those things and to listen to other people, particularly people you disagree with. Listen to them, try and understand them. Um, okay, so that's, if you will, the practical side. Um, and then let me just talk a little about my job. I said it was the dodgy end of dodgy. Um, there is there's clearly some truth to that. Um, there are, if you look back uh, over the past 20 years, um, there are some elements uh, of what's happened in the tax world, and indeed other parts of the world as well, but I'll talk about tax, um, which have become unhinged from that uh, idea of, you know, what are these better things that we're trying to do? What is this? What are we trying to do? I strongly believe, uh, and I'll, I'll give you the, the capitalist bit for about 30 seconds, um, I strongly believe that the purpose of a business uh, at the beginning is to make things uh, and to provide services that people want to buy. If they do those things, then a number of really good things can follow from that. They can create that sense of community. Uh, they can provide people with, um, with wealth, which they can use to help their families, which they can use to help other people. And they can also make a profit, which enables them to pay tax. I believe, uh, and this is something which I had terrible trouble with in the Church of England, uh, I believe that for-profit business can be good. It isn't automatically good, but it can be good, because it does many of those things. Now, we have to be very careful about the way we say that, and we have to be very careful about the way we think about that. Um, and I, I am going to finish up here, because, I, because I, want to, um, I do want to allow time for questions. But one thing that I have found incredibly helpful in this, because I have every, every, every incentive to tell myself that whatever I don't like about work, it's still more important for me to be there. Because it's really interesting. They pay me a lot of money. I get to travel the world, sometimes too much around the world. But I have every incentive to tell myself that this job is worth doing. And I need to question that. And we all need to question that. Because in the end, this comes from God. This is not about us. This is not about our own goodness. It's not about, in a sense, our own efforts. But it is about what can we do in our workplace which offers it back. And therefore, we need to ask questions about that. And an idea which I found incredibly helpful is uh, uh, an American Franciscan, who many of you will know, Richard Raw, falling upwards for the over 50s in the crowd. Um, uh, Richard Raw has written a lot of really good stuff. He wrote one short article, uh, which grabbed my attention, in part because it was shoved at me during my uh, ordination retreat. So, um, uh, so it came at just the right time. Uh, and he talks about living on the edge of the inside. Um, and what this means is you are not outside the circle. You are not the angry prophet outside, hurling stones, you know, sort of making imprecations. Um, you are not the, the sort of the just, righteous critic. You are inside the circle. You have taken the organization, whatever organization it is, whether it's a church or whether it's a workplace, and you have said there is something honorable about this. At the same time, it is about staying close enough to the edge that you understand that not everything that the church or business or whatever that organization is, not everything that it does is automatically right. Uh, and therefore, you know, it's not my country or my company or my church, right or wrong. 
It is about staying close enough to what the people on the outside are saying to be able to do that. And that I find incredibly helpful. Um, I, I do not completely answer myself when I look in the mirror every morning, but that sort of helps me to do it. And there are ways that I do that. I talk to NGOs, for example, not all of whom like tax uh, and large corporations. And I want to know what they think. I want to understand what it is that they're saying. I don't agree with everything they're saying, but they do bring some useful things to the table. I want to listen to the other critics, but I also want to make clear that I do believe that the businesses that I've been associated with do also do good things in the world and can do good things in the world if good people work in them and try to make those things work. So, um, I'll stop there. But, you know, I really hope that these are things which interest you as well. This is such an opportunity. I mean, you look around everywhere around here. I mean, you sort of take a compass, and whether it's 100 yards, 500 yards, a mile, there are so many businesses, there are so many people around here working, and I think based on my experience, who are looking to understand better what it is that they're doing and what the opportunities are, and how they can help to make the world a slightly better place. So, I invite you to join me in this task, but ask questions. Uh, sure. Um, so I've been asked to tell you exactly what I do do. Okay. So um, that's it's a it's a fair question. Um, so I do uh, tax policy uh, for for PwC. I used to do it for for GE. What does that mean? Okay. So as Clark said, uh, 20 years ago now, I worked at the at the U.S. Treasury, and uh, I I was a history major. I loved history. Um, uh, I have maybe not the unique. Um, uh, distinction, but but relatively unique distinction of having turned out not uh, one PhD offer in history, but two, um, one from Cambridge and one from uh, uh, from UVA, and I don't regret doing that. But I loved history, um, which is a way of saying I do not have an accountant's mind. I have, I have. Michelle will tell you I cannot hold on to numbers. I mean, give me three numbers, I start mixing them up. Uh, I can't do any of that stuff. I don't have a mind which works terribly well, you know, like the cogs of a well-oiled machine. No, that's not me. Um, but somehow, um, this is a longer story, I found myself in the world of tax, uh, and I've stuck with it. But the policy side of it I find really interesting, which is actually, what do we do? Um, you know, part of it can be, can be relatively instrumental or ministerial in the sense of, okay, we need to raise this amount of money. Um, you know, how do we do that? What's the technical way of doing that? But more about it is, actually, what's the relationship between tax um, and the wider economy? What are the effects that tax can have on people's activities? Um, if we do something in one way, we can create a huge compliance burden for businesses and maybe not raise a great deal of tax. If we do it another way, we can reverse that. But we can also use tax to incentivize some things. Don't get me wrong, that argument can get overused as well. Um, but equally, you know, taxes, a lot of businesses pay a lot of tax. Um, and to be sure, there are the headlines about some very low tax rates. But if you look on average, but the effective tax rates of most corporations, um, they're actually relatively reasonable. 
So it's about doing that. But one of the things that happened to me along the way, particularly when I went back to London, so I was hired into GE to be a, to be a tax planner. I spent, again, Michelle can tell you this, about three years sitting in Fairfield, Connecticut, thinking, why the heck did these people employ me? I have no idea what I'm doing. I was surrounded by some really, really clever people. I have no idea. But when I went to London, um, uh, my boss, um, I said to my boss, what should I do? And he said, you know what the drill is. He said, go and find out what needs to be done, and then you know, come back and talk to me, and then we'll, we'll empower you to do it. So I went over there, and you know, in DC, we have a very sophisticated lobbying operation. We think a lot about policy. Outside, in the rest of the world, well, it was an act of God. You know, so a legislature does something, okay, well, we'll figure out how to deal with that. And I said, I think we can do more here. Uh, I really do. So uh, he said, okay, go and, go and try it out. What that meant was there were very, very few corporations, not just American corporations, any corporations, full stop, who were doing this type of work. So uh, when interesting jobs came up and they asked for volunteers, there was only ever one, there was only ever one person in the room, uh, and my hand went up. And so over, over a period of time, I found myself getting much more involved with international organizations as well. So um, this evening, for example, I'm on a plane to Paris at uh, overnight. Um, one of the organizations I do a lot with is something called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, which is probably actually quite well known in this room. Um, uh, and they have a leading role uh, in tax. Uh, and right at the moment, they are trying to remake the international tax system from top to bottom. Um, in about nine months. Now, that's sort of ambitious, perhaps slightly beyond ambitious in some senses. Um, to be sure, there are some issues out there, because if you look at the way that business has, has changed over the past 20 years, I mean, again, part of it comes down to this. It is about digitalization, it's about globalization, it's about being able to do things from here which have an effect over there. And therefore, how do you think about that? But my role um, and this is sort of where it becomes a little, I mean, I, I'm very, very careful about never talking about this to secular colleagues in religious terms, but this is where the two things come together, which is actually how do we bring people to a place where we can actually begin to reach a solution which is good um, uh, for everybody? And not just everybody, business and taxpayers, but actually citizens as well. And that is not just about tax revenue, it's also about jobs. Uh, and it's about creating stable, stable situations. All of this, in a sense, sounds wildly optimistic because you have only to read the newspapers. Um, and yes, I'm heading into a strike in France uh, as well. Uh, I'll go to London um, after that for the last two days of an absolutely ghastly election campaign. Um, I'll then go on to, I can't remember where I'm going after that, and then I, then I come back here. Um, and as you know, there are issues um, here as well. Um, nevertheless, we only do what we can do. Um, and therefore, in, in, in that sense, what I try and do is, is to pull people together. Uh, and I'm going to sound something which, say something which sounds incredibly um, self-aggrandizing or pompous or something, but, but just, just bear with me a second. Um, the, not the current Bishop of London, but the one who ordained me was a very grand figure, um, who unfortunately had also gone to my college at Cambridge, so he talked to me more than he would talk to some other people. And one of the things he, he would say was, I have no idea why you have to get ordained as a priest. He said, Deacon, I get that. Priest, don't get it at all. You know, why can't you stay in the workplace and be a deacon? And so I, I uh, you know, I took it as it came. Um, but I then talked to, um, uh, to my vicar at St. Martin's. Uh, and I said, what do you think about this? And he said, well, let me give you an idea to play with. Um, he said, you know, what is the role of the priest? He said, the role of the priest is to create something sacramental. Okay, well, that gets you no farther along. What exactly does that mean? So the role of the priest is to take the bread and wine at the altar 
and transformed in some way that we don't understand into something which enables people to connect with God and to understand what the holiness of the sacrament is. He said, view yourself at work as taking bread and wine to the altar of the workplace and in that place creating something which is sacramental, something which is of God, something which connects the workplace and God. Now, as I said, I would never, ever, ever say that um, outside this type of setting. But that's the way that I view this. We can bring people together. We can bring people more into relationship. We can calm things down. We can take the anger out of it just you know, by being involved. And part of it is about just simply being the people we are. But part of it is also about you have to park your own ego at the door. I'm, I'm not always terribly good at that, but I try. Um, it's about accommodating other people. It's about bringing them together. So the policy work that I do at this stage is about, you know, it's not about how do we reach any agreement, but it's about how do we create a space, an atmosphere, a possibility for something creative to happen, as opposed to for this to be yet another forum where people argue where it gets to the stage where if one side wins and the other side has to lose, uh, and then somebody tries to ram it through, uh, everybody disagrees, and nothing has been solved. So it's how do we do that? And that's how I see my job. Uh, you mentioned within 100 yards, 200 yards, 300 yards, there are a lot of people yep. in business. Uh, does St. John's have a special to those people 100, 200, 300 yards away. And I hate to use this term. If it does, uh, how, do you, how do we operationalize that? Right. Um, so the, the answer, the, the, oh, sorry, okay. So the, the, question, the question was, if I draw those concentric circles out, whether it's 100, 300, 500 mile, whatever it is, um, do we have a ministry to those people? And if we do, then how do we operationalize it? How do we make it real? Um, the answer to the first question is, Clearly, yes, otherwise I wouldn't be here. Um, uh, we do have a ministry uh, to those people. And whether you view this as a geographic, pass, uh, uh, geographic parish, a geographic responsibility, or whether you simply view it as the community of those, again, those concentric circles around you, we have that obligation. How do we uh, operationalize it? Um, uh, that's trickier, but not impossible. Um, and Rob and I have spent quite a lot of time talking about this. Uh, a great opportunity came up a month and a half ago when the, the folks at the Hay Adams uh, reached out and said, yeah, actually, we'd be interested to talk about that. So, so, you know, part of it is, okay, it's simply letting them know that we're available, we're across, the, we're across the road, are there things that we could do, which for everybody from the top to the bottom of that organization would enable them occasionally to celebrate or to find the space. Could we do a lunch for them here or a breakfast for them, you know, once a month, once every three months? We could do it for the other hotels as well. You know, obviously, there's the, what's it currently called, the Ritz-Carlton, which is up there, um, uh, St. Regis, um, uh, uh, you know, there, there's the Hilton beyond that. There are lots of those types of organizations. So that's one thing that we have done. And I went and spoke to the, uh, uh, to the general manager and, and his deputy, also about going and talking to the management team and helping them think through things. And uh, this is the opportunity. Yes, you knew there was going to be an opportunity to talk about Christmas presents. Um, uh, there are some books. Um, and uh, in this one, in the, this first one in particular, it's broken up into a bunch of things which basically say, you know, these were things which interested me. Um, I'm in the workplace. This seems like a really difficult issue. How do I deal with it? 
And we've, we've been discussing, well, we could take one of those every three months. And, you know, one of the, I mean, they're simple things, like, you know, what if I'm asked to lie? Well, it's not a simple thing, but it's a simple question. What if I'm asked to lie? What if I get a difficult email? What if I'm tempted to do something bad? What if I do something bad? Those types of things. So, so that's, that's one opportunity. One of the other things that, um, uh, that we've been talking about is reaching out to, um, I mean, you know, we have some, some different types of organizations, uh, not with necessarily the same points of view. But, you know, again, let me take an example, and this was something I did a bit in London as well. We have the AFLCA right there, and we have the Chamber right there. Okay, they don't always see eye to eye. But nevertheless, something that a place like St. John's can do is to offer a neutral space to talk about that. Now, I did that particularly in, in the tax world. I get people from um, mostly the UK government, um, but also from academia. Um, uh, occasionally, I drag along one of my clergy colleagues who mostly look bored, but um, it, was, it was tax, so you can't help that. Um, business people uh, and, and NGOs. And I'd say, okay, let's not, let's not talk about the rights and wrongs of this. Let's not talk about the numbers. But tell me about how you feel about this. And there was one occasion I remember in particular where you know, business would always say, the only reason why the NGOs do you know, go on about tax is because so, it's really, really, really helpful for them in raising money. And the NGOs at the same time were publishing these reports saying, you know, because of your tax dodging, you are killing 354 babies every single day in Africa. Now, those are not promising places from which to start a conversation. So what I said was, I said, NGOs, you tell us what you feel, not what you think, tell us what you feel about being accused of doing these things only to raise money. And I said to the business people, I said, and you tell the NGOs, you know, you who have spent years working in corporations, gaining qualifications, how you feel that the, all the outcome of your job is, is killing 354 babies a day. Talk to each other, okay? Neutral space, no recording devices, nobody's gonna report this out. And we had a really amazing conversation over the course of an hour and a half. And those are the possibilities that a place like St. John's, right here, with the facilities to do it, can actually offer. Do your international colleagues know that you're a priest? Oh, yes. Um, when, when I first got ordained uh, as, as a deacon uh, originally, uh, one of my colleagues, as I was still a G, one of my colleagues um, said, oh, that's great, that's great, you know, any photographs. So I sent a photograph. Half an hour later, 250 of my colleagues had that photograph saying, hey, look what Will just did. Um, okay, that actually turned out to be an amazing invitation to, to, to them and to me uh, to be able to talk about it. Um, uh, you know, at, at this point, uh, you know, in my office, for example, I have, I have a relatively small frame picture uh, of my ordination ceremony. There is a Bible um, in the bookshelf. There are a couple of other uh, theology books. Um, and everybody knows. And in a sign of the times, uh, when I joined PwC, I was required also to go on Twitter, which um, was not my idea of fun. Um, and, you know, I mostly do it for work. I send really excruciatingly, if you're not in tax, and, and Michelle had to listen to me talk about this for four hours as we drove up to Massachusetts last weekend. Um, uh, it's not interesting to non-tax people, okay? But, you know, so I send out emails about that. But, all, uh, sorry, uh, tw uh, tweets about that. But also, because we're told to make a little bit about ourselves, you know, on high days and holidays, I'll also send out something. So I said, when I joined St. John's, I sent out you know, sort of a link to the welcome announcement from here. I will tweet something at Christmas. So yes, people know. 
Um, and again, I regard that as, you know, I have to be super careful. And even when I'm being super careful, um, you know, people are, ex some people are expecting me to speak down to them. Some people are expecting to be lectured because I'm a priest. Um, and, you know, I, I try not to do that. But for the most part, and a much bigger part of it is, it just gives people permission to come in, sit down and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about this. And I, I, I was in, this was odd, but I was in Brussels a couple of weeks ago, and I, I went out for, for lunch with a guy from one of the think tanks. And towards the end, he said, um, could I talk to you about something? And I went, sure. And he said, um, he said, I'm about halfway through your book. And I said, well, thank you. It's not, you know, it's not going to put me into retirement, but, um, you know, but, but what? And he said, you know, I find it really helpful. But, he said, I have this particular question. Could you explain this to me? And we then had another half-hour conversation, which I would not have expected to have had, but which he found helpful, and actually which I found helpful too. Um, you know, we all have stuff to learn. So I just find those opportunities, now that people know, present themselves. And it's not me about, it's certainly not you know, me standing on a chair and waving a pamphlet at people. But it is about saying, hey, if you want to talk, I'm here. How does the, uh, I would say, the radical position of anti-spiritual, uh, spiritualism from organizations that are trying to purge not-for-profit organizations, non-governmental organizations, and the workplace of any hints or acknowledgement that spirituality exists? How do you deal with that as you approach this challenge? Because it's something that all of us who run businesses yeah. and are, say, not-for-profit people we're severely criticized for injecting any aspect of spirituality in our activities. That, so let me repeat the question. Uh, how do we deal with what is essentially a, a, a corporate culture, but also an NGO culture, um, which essentially is allergic to religion uh, and to spirituality? Um, and I'm not sure I have the full answer to that. Uh, part of the answer is I am who I am, and I'm not going to pretend I'm not um, who I am. I'm not going to force it onto people. Um, but I also think that it then, I mean, I, you know, I, under, I understand what HR are doing. I don't always like it. Some of it really actually irritates the heck out of me. Um, but I understand why they're doing it. And that's, you know, that's HR's job. Uh, it, it truly is. Um, the way that it works is on an individual basis. Um, and again, it's this thing about building it up from the bottom. Um, I mean, you need to, I do believe in, I'll give it a fancy term, structural sin. You can find yourselves in organizations which are so badly designed that the only possible outcome for any individual in that organization is that it will do something bad to you. I don't think there are a huge number of those organizations, and obviously there's a spectrum there. That does exist. In most organizations which are trying to be neutral in this sense, it is neutral at an institutional level. It is not about squeezing out the possibility for spirituality in individual conversations, in the relationships that you have with people. And so, you know, in part, I think it's about in a sense, it's about taking it easy. I'll, I'll use a, a UK example. Um, there, was, there was somebody who worked for British Airways, and she wanted to wear a cross. Uh, and they, oh, God, it went through, I don't know, five levels of litigation. And, you know, everybody, everybody was involved in this. And, you know, there, was, there were these institutes were supporting, and these institutes were... And I'm sitting there thinking, hey, you know, what good does this do? I mean, it, it does the institution no good for coming down so heavily on it. But it actually does us Christians no good um, by, by getting so attached to the symbols. I mean, 
What does it mean to turn the other cheek? What does it mean to go the additional mile? What does it mean to, you know, just to take up our cross and follow him? Um, it's not about these symbols. It's not about getting worked up about what we're being deprived of. I mean, you know, I, so I am quite clearly at this point uh, a middle-aged, uh, over-educated, incredibly privileged white man, okay? Uh, I will stipulate all of those things. I am not going to feel sorry for myself. I do not feel that I'm being put down upon. And I actually don't think that most spiritual people are unless they get themselves into that frame of mind. And it is possible to get into that frame of mind. And occasionally you come across silliness where people say, no, you can't do that, you can't say that. You know, I, I, again, um, Michelle will tell you that um, happy holidays is not my favorite term. I'll, I'll go with it for the most part. I'll also wish people a Merry Christmas. Um, and uh, you know, I'll see if I can get away with it. Um, again, it's, just, it's not wearing that too heavily. Uh, it really isn't. I don't think that the people at the top of the organization uh, are dyed-in-the-wool atheists. I think they're very careful. Unfortunately, they've spoken to you know, lawyers like me in different areas who told them what to be careful about, you know, what this says, what that says. I just, you know, okay. So there are some rules there. That's fine. But we live our lives the way we are. And I think that's the way to do it and the way to show it. Last question. So going to your, your paradigm of individuals being in a relationship with others in the corporate setting, organization setting, as well as companies who provide a benefit to society if they're successful. Yeah. You haven't mentioned the word competition. Could, we, could you sort of apply competition to your paradigm? Because the hypothetical would be two individuals in a company were both competing for a promotion right. that would enable them to perform better and be successful in the relationship, or two companies so chapter 13, what happens if I'm told to compete against my colleague? This is a great Christmas present. <laughs> um, um, the, the, the short answer is um, competition is not bad as such. Uh, again, if you look at organizations where there is no competition, they grow into monopolies. You look at places where there is no competition because the deck is stacked, there's stasis. You have nothing which is of growth. The question, as with everything else in life, is how do you do that in a reasonable, sensitive way? Um, and I, I think I, I probably ought to be a little careful about the time, um, particularly as I think I'm meant to be presiding. Um, but, uh, you know, again, how do you do that? Competition is not bad. In the same way that money is not bad, it can be bad. If it becomes about us, and how we work out our aggressions and our pridefulness and all those other things, then it's a bad thing. But if it's actually about helping an organization, an organism, if you will, to live and to grow, then it's a good thing. More unpacking to be done, but it's a great question. Thank you. Everyone, please join me.